Thank you, Debbie. Good morning, everybody. As uh, many of you know, Mikey is uh, over in uh, Northern Kentucky. He got to perform a wedding yesterday, and he's preaching at his dad's church uh, this Sunday morning. So I get the privilege to share uh, God's Word this morning with you all, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. Really appreciate it. You ever feel like God puts an idea on your heart that he just wants you to stick with, like he's just trying to tell you something? As we're looking into the Easter season, I feel like that God's been telling me, don't just go through the motions. Don't just let this be another Sunday or another season in the church life. Don't let it just be filled with busyness, but actually focus on my grace, on what it costs and what I'm offering to you. And so with that in mind, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about God's grace. God's costly grace to us. Let me ask you a question. We talk about grace being a gift. What happens when the gift is taken for granted? Many of you probably receive, like I do, flyers in the mail almost every day little coupons or advertisements, trying to promote something they want you to buy. I mean, I get a Dish Network thing at least once a week saying, you know, subscribe and save all this money. Now, what do we usually call those flyers that come in the mail? Right. Junk mail, trash, right. And if you're like me, you take one look at it and you say, oh, I'm not interested in that, and you pitch it. Or, if you're like me, you look and say, well, you know, maybe I might use that, so I'll, I'll tear it off and I'll put it aside, then you forget about it and the expiration date comes and goes and you don't ever end up using it. Or, if it's something you actually do need, you say, oh, I'm going to use that, you take it off, you stick it in your wallet, you put it in your purse, and you say, I'm going to use this and end up using it. One thing I like to do whenever we go on vacation is I like to go and pick up all the little coupon books and discount books I can get. And if you've ever gone to Gatlinburg or to Branson or to Myrtle Beach, you know that there are these books everywhere. You can find them in every hotel, every restaurant. So then there's stands on the side of the road. You just grab everything. And they end up having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of coupons. And they'll say thousands of dollars in savings. In fact, it's not just on vacation. This is actually an Owensboro coupon book that we picked up sometime last year. I can't even remember when. Uh, looks like everything expired on August 31st, 2016, but I've still got to look for it. Because we're like that. We, we grab these things. This one is a Mammoth Cave savings. We went to Mammoth Cave last year. If you wanted to go see uh, kayaking or Kentucky Down Under, there's all sorts of great coupons in there for it. But you want to know how many of these I've used in this last year? None. You know how many of those Gatlinburg coupons I use when I grab those coupon, coupon books? I'll get a stack of them. I'll have a whole bag full, maybe two I use if I can find like a restaurant that I'm really interested in or something. And what I think happens is that whenever we go on these trips or whenever we know that these, these books are free, we take them for granted. We think, oh, well, I'll just go and I'll just grab it and whatever. I'll, I'll waste a tree or two just grabbing all these and sticking them in my bag and never using them. And I'm afraid that might be what happens to us when we talk about the gift of God's grace. You see, God's grace is freely given to us. And because it's free, maybe we struggle with taking it for granted. 
Maybe it's become so common to us in church to talk about God's free gift of grace that it's lost its meaning, it's lost its power, it's lost what it actually cost. Something that's freely given can easily be taken for granted. And when that happens, when we do that with God's grace, we have this problem called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, next slide. There, German theologian, uh, 20th century, was born in 1906 in Poland, died April 9, 1945, in a concentration camp. He actually opposed the Nazi regime and was killed for it. He's a, a, a German theologian. He wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he coined the phrase cheap grace and costly grace. Bonhoeffer says the cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It's grace that's sold on the marketplace like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolation, the consolations of religion are all thrown away at cut prices. Can you imagine the grace of God sold on clearance? But how does this happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is going to be our main text for this morning. Beginning in verse 1 and 2, Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. That word, that phrase, in vain, really stuck out to me. In fact, he uses it several times in this chapter. And it just kind of hit home. Whenever you read something over and over again in Scripture, you think it's got to be in there for a reason. So what does it mean to be done in vain? Typically, when we think of in vain, we think of putting forth some kind of an effort and not getting the results that we had hoped for. Now, like many of you, I filled out an NCAA bracket. I did not have North Carolina and Gonzaga in the final game. In fact, I had my team in the final game. I know it was wishful thinking, but I had Louisville in there. And as you know, if you follow the tournament, they lost in the second round. They did not fulfill my hopes and wishes for them. In fact, my, my belief in that team was in vain for this tournament. And if we're honest, we've all had that worry. What if all of this what if church, what if this, this stuff that we've committed our life to, what if it's all in vain? What if God isn't real? What if God's word isn't true? What if it's not God's word? What if Jesus didn't really die on the cross for our sins? I know it's probably something that we've all asked one time or another, especially if we've been in a, a dark season of life. But is that what Paul was asking here? Is this what Paul is referring to when he says, unless you have believed in vain? Is he talking about God not fulfilling his end of the deal? I don't think so. I think that what Paul means is something completely different. It's not that God would let them down. It's something else. Let's continue to read. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3 now. For I delivered to you, as was first importance, what I also received, that Christ 
died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says Jesus appeared to me. So Paul begins by saying what is of chief importance, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. This was not a question to Paul. Paul says this is fact. In fact, we know this because not only did he appear to the disciples and to me, he appeared to over 500 people, and many of those people are still alive. So if you have questions over the reality of Jesus' ministry, of his resurrection, just go talk to these people, because they're still around. You can confirm it. No, Paul's not saying that. He then recounts his own story. He says, Jesus appeared to me personally. I know because I was on the road to persecute those Christians. There was not one shred of doubt in Paul's mind that what Jesus had done on the cross was true. That he was raised from the dead. Paul is not questioning that whatsoever. But yet he asks, unless you have believed in vain. What is he talking about here? Well, let's continue to read verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, Unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not, there's that phrase again, his, his grace was not in vain. No, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of those other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God at work within me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believe. You see, Paul's not questioning Jesus. He's questioning himself. Paul says, I am not worthy to be saved, but God saved me. I'm not worthy to be a leader in the church, but God called me to be an apostle. I'm not worthy to even be standing here before you, but by the grace of God, he gave me a second chance, and a third chance, and a 100th chance. And I don't want to neglect that grace unless I do and his grace to me is in vain. You see, Paul isn't questioning whether or not God's going to keep his end of the bargain. He's questioning whether or not the Corinthians are going to keep their end of the bargain. Well, what do you mean? Grace isn't something you can work for. It's absolutely right. You cannot earn grace. Grace is given to you. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. But God's grace requires that we make a commitment. That we have to follow Him. It's not just simply agreeing with the Word of God and saying, okay, yeah, I think Jesus is who He says He was and He did all that stuff. Great. No. There is a commitment. There is a life change. It means that you must repent of your sins. It means that you need to be baptized into Christ. It means that you need to confess the Lord. And it means you need to commit to discipleship. See, to Paul, if you simply believe in the gospel, but that's it, then you're taking God's grace in vain. That is cheap 
grace. It's grace without consequence. It's grace without any kind of commitment. It's just saying, because God offers it freely, I take it and nothing else is different. No, grace without a life change is not the grace of God. It is cheap grace that we offer to ourselves. We say, oh, it's no big deal. Yeah, I had those thoughts. Yeah, I said those words. Yeah, I treated that person poorly, but I'm okay. Because God's forgiven me. No need to worry. It's not the kind of forgiveness that frees us from the toils of sin. In fact, if we're honest, sometimes we don't even want to be freed from our sin. We just want to be freed from the consequence of our sin. We don't want to be punished. We don't want to go to hell. We want to have the, the hope of heaven, but yet still enjoy earth and all of its worldly pleasures. Bonhoeffer says that it's the kind of grace we bestow on ourselves. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring that repentance. It's the baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is ultimately belief without obedience, hearing without doing, and intellectual assent, saying, I agree, but not making a life commitment. All you have to do is agree Jesus was the Son of God and He died for your sins, and you're saved. And you don't have to change anything about your life. You see, the problem, though, with cheap grace is that it just completely ignores the cost that Jesus had to pay. In fact, it kind of trashes it. When we say God's grace is offered to everybody and nobody has to change, everybody's going to be saved, don't need to worry. It means that Jesus really didn't need to die on the cross. He didn't really need to suffer. But in fact... Very simply put, the true cost of Jesus is it cost him everything. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he was God, he did not consider equality of God as something to cling on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being, and appeared in human form, humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on the cross. Why did he die a criminal's death if there's no need for sin to be punished? Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 6 says that he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. <coughs> he, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And when we thought of his troubles, and we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our, our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus lost everything. He gave up his position. He gave up his, his perfect sinless life. Why? Why did he do it? So that we could be saved. 
so that we can be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, Jesus became poor for my sake. Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. God's grace cost him the life of a son. I can't even imagine that. I love my kids. I can't imagine giving their lives up for someone else. Let alone someone who despised and rejected. Someone who was just going to take that offer and just trample on it and throw it out like it was a bunch of junk mail that we had no use for. That is cheap grace, but God's grace cost so much. It cost Jesus everything. So then we look at what does it cost us? What does God's grace require of us? A few years ago, it was Valentine's Day, the week of Valentine's Day, and I wanted to do something special for my wife. Our local radio station was having this call-in contest. Uh, we had a Christian comedian named Taylor Mason was going to be at one of the churches, and he had a sold-out concert, and Lindsay really wanted to go see it, and I couldn't get tickets for it. So the, the local radio station had this contest where you sign up, and they're going to call your number randomly. And if they pick you, then you're going to win these two tickets. And I thought, awesome, I can do that. I'll sign up, I'll send them the email. But there was a cost to this little giveaway. You said you had to answer the phone. The very first word you said is love never fails. You couldn't say hello. You couldn't say hi. You couldn't say what's up. You couldn't say hold on. You had to say, as soon as you turned on, you picked up your phone, pushed the button, you had to say, love never fails. And if you didn't, you didn't win. In fact, they had people on the radio all the time that they missed out. They picked up their phone and, and they answered it like a normal person would, and they didn't win the contest. So I was ready. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this. I need to get this. I need to get these tickets. So uh, for the whole week they're doing the contest, I ended up sleeping out in the living room because I didn't want her to know. I didn't want her to know what I was doing. She's like, well, what's going on? I'm sick. I, didn't use it idea. I wanted to keep it a surprise. Well, at about 6 o'clock in the morning on Frio Dale, this is like a Tuesday, maybe, uh, my phone rings. And thankfully, my phone, you know, I got the color ID on my cell phone. But unfortunately for me, earlier in the week, it had rang several times, and I didn't know who it was, and I answered the phone, love it fails, and on the other end, I got a, a what? Uh, is this Scott? Wrong number, you know. It, Get my caller ID and help me some, but this time it's six in the morning. Like nobody's calling me at six in the morning, but a morning radio show. So my phone rings. I'm, I'm, I'm in a daze. I'm just waking up. I'm half asleep. And it's from the Love Never And they're like, We have a winner! Yes, Scott Parker, you won! Woo! We're on the radio, and I'm like, Yeah! My kids, they hear me. They come running in. They're getting ready for school. They're like, what, what, what? It's like, Oh, I just won this contest. It's awesome. And I got to, you know, share this lovely night. They called it a night of love and laughter with my wife. Now, that cost me a little bit. You know, I had to sign up. I had to, let's say, tell a little fib about why I was sleeping out on the couch. I had to, you know, I had to uh, arrange things so that it would be a surprise for Lindsay. And I had to deal with some of the embarrassment of answering my phone and people thinking I was a crazy person because of the way I was talking. But it paid off. Think about that. Have you ever been to a, a giveaway where it's like the first 100 customers through the door, they get a free TV or a free whatever? Well, what do you do? If you're really interested in it, you light up early. 
You get there so you're in the front of the line. But if you go to a place and they're just handing out things left and right, you're like, oh, this is junk. What do you do with it? You just pitch it. You throw it away. It has to, it determines on what we put the value on the prize that's given. And for some of us, we don't put enough value on what Christ has done for us. It costs us something to receive the grace of Jesus. Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells the cost of being a disciple. Verse 25 says, A large crowd was following Jesus, so he turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, then you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, So, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything that you own. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to go out and hate the people in our lives, like to mistreat them and to, and to despise them and to talk bad about them and treat them poorly. No, Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying that the love that you have for me has to be your priority. This has to be the first thing in your life. So that by comparison, everything else looks like hate. So Jesus says that this call to following him, this commitment, has got to be first and foremost. That means it's the most important relationship. Not your parents, not your spouse, not even your kids. So what does that look like? What does that mean in everyday life? Well, it means that you can't let your family to cause your faith to be in vain. Some of us, we're afraid to do what God calls us to do because we know our parents won't like it. Or we think that our spouse might criticize. Or we think that our kids' stuff is more important. We sacrifice our time with the Lord, our time with other believers, our time in the Word, our time in church because we want our kids to have absolutely every opportunity. But Jesus says, your relationship with me has to be your first priority. He says, you must be ready then to carry your cross. What does that mean? In Jesus' day, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, it wasn't good. If somebody is walking around carrying a cross, it means that they have lost. It means that they have been condemned. It means that they were going somewhere you didn't want to go. The cross was the instrument of death and torture. The Christian life isn't always easy. You might think that, well, if I'm with God, I'm on God's team, that everything should feel good for me. Well, it's not always easy. There are times you're going to miss out on opportunities because you decide that following Christ is more important. You might have to end a relationship. You might have to give up that habit that you've been clinging to. You might end up doing something. You might have to end up stopping doing something that you love because these things, whatever they are, are driving a wedge between you and God. Our sinful desires... They battle against us. And it doesn't stop just because I'm a preacher or because you went to Bible college or because you've been a Christian your whole life. No, it's a daily battle with your sinful desires and your spiritual desires. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He says you must be willing to give up everything. And Satan's going to do everything he can to try to discourage you. He's going to put temptation. He's going to put stress. He's going to put failure in your way. He's going to put criticism. <coughs> Jesus says you've got to give it all up. Let me ask you, name for yourself, not out loud, but just name in your head, 
your top three possessions that you have. Maybe it's a, a, your house. Maybe it's something, a treasured family possession. It's something that you really treasure. What if God asked you to give it up today? It'd hurt, wouldn't it? It'd be hard. What if it's your job or your bank account? What if it's the hopes and dreams you have for your own future or your kids' future? So many times we get frustrated with God because we make plans that He doesn't agree to. We think our lives shouldn't end up a certain way, and when it doesn't, we question God's goodness. But really, should we question our desire to follow Him? Are we really submitting? And you might say, wait a minute, Scott, you're really depressing me. I'm sorry. I don't mean to depress you this morning. That's not my but just like I said, I feel like God's been saying this to me that I personally need to look at my heart and say, am I taking God's grace for me? Now, I don't believe that he's saying that every one of us just needs to just give up our entire lives and go out on the street and be poor and homeless and just walk around begging for money and, 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 and never see our family again. I don't think that's what God's saying. I think he's saying that your desire has to be for him first. Think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. He sent Abraham up to that mountain to sacrifice Isaac. But yet when he knew that he was willing to do it, God stopped him. God didn't require Isaac to die. He wanted to test where Abraham's faith was. And because of that faith, he was considered righteous. It's about his desire and his commitment. Now here's another problem with cheap grace. When we start thinking about things like this, we really think our stuff is more valuable than it really is. God's grace is the greatest gift. Say it with me, it's on the screen. God's, God's grace, grace is the greatest gift. But do we believe that? I do. God's word tells us. Now, grace is not a one-time-only event. It's not a gift you get just on the day you're saved. Grace is a gift every single day. We stand in God's grace. It's how we get through our days sometimes is just merely by the grace of God go I. You ever said that? By the grace of God go I. It's not only a one-time event. In fact... The call to follow Jesus isn't just a one-time thing either. You might think, okay, well, I was so on fire for God before, but stuff in my life has happened. I've gone cold. I can't go back. Let me tell you about a guy named Peter. Did you know on two separate occasions in Peter's life, Jesus went up to him one-on-one -on -one and said, follow me. Two times Peter needed to hear that message. The first time was when he was just calling his disciples. For the very first time, he said, Hey, Peter, come follow me. And you know what Peter was doing? He was out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. He was fishing. He said, All right, I'll go do it. And he ran and he followed Jesus. The second time, Peter was again out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. Jesus comes up to the shore and says, Hey, Peter, you follow me. But this time, it was three and a half years later. This is actually the last recorded words we have in the Bible that Jesus spoke directly to the Apostle Peter. said, you follow me. What happened?
happened in between that time. Three and a half years of ministry. Peter followed Jesus as one of his closest disciples. But at the end, it didn't look good. The night Jesus was arrested, he tried to stand firm. He cut off that servant's ear. He tried to make a stand and fight. But Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm here for. And so Peter was disheartened. He ran away scared. He tried to follow closely as they took Jesus to the, the, the court. And he tried to follow behind. And they said, wait, you were with Jesus, weren't you? No, I wasn't with Jesus. No, you sound like one of those, those Galileans. No, it's not me. I, 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 I'm sure you were with him. I swear to you. No, I don't even know the man. And then as Jesus predicted, the rooster crowed. And Peter is convicted and he says, woe is me. And he runs out. And you know what I think happened? I think Peter gave up. I think he thought that my sin is so great, I have rejected Jesus, I have turned my back on everything that we stood for for these three years, I'm just going to go back to old man life. Have you ever felt like you were too far gone? Have you ever longed for the days when you were younger and you said, man, my faith was so much more genuine than I didn't have all the stress. I didn't have all the worry. I didn't have all the desire. I hadn't messed up like I messed up. You have that regret and that shame. I think that's what Peter was carrying with him. That's why he was back out on the boat fishing. In the same place where Jesus found him the first time to see Galilee. Because his shame pushed him there. But right before those last words of Jesus where he says, follow me for a second time. We have the very famous back and forth where he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You see, Jesus didn't give up on Peter. Jesus knew before he was going to do it that he was going to deny him. But Jesus still called him. He still offered him grace. He still said, I have a purpose for you. You follow me. And those last words that Jesus said to Peter, kick-started his ministry, his real ministry, where he stepped up and preached the first gospel sermon just a couple months later. If Peter had let his shame, his failure, his sin, how he'd gone cold after he used to be on fire, if he'd let all that cause him to quit, then God's grace to him really would have been in vain. But thank the Lord that he didn't. I want to share this last scripture with you. This is an encouragement to me. And I hope it is to you too. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1 says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Our strength comes from God's grace. Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. What does that mean? means that if you're going to receive grace, you have to do it according to God's standards. You have to put your trust in Him. You have to turn away from your sin. You have to be baptized. You have to commit to following Him as your Lord. That is the requirement. I get up here and say I'm this all day long. I can say, I'm an NFL football player. I'm not. <laughs> I can say I am all I want to. You put me out there on the field with some real football players? 
that was preaching my funeral pretty soon. I can say it, but unless I went through the training, unless I made the commitment, unless I got recruited by the team, it's not true. Thankfully, God has opened spots on his team. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Endurance is the key. Don't give up. Don't let his grace be in vain. Endurance leads to salvation. Don't ever give up. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. If you say, I give up and I quit and I turn my back on Jesus, then you are taking his grace in vain. But if you struggle, if you stumble, if you say, I've messed up and I need to come back to the Lord, Jesus will forgive you. He will not disown you, even if we are faithless, because it's not our faith. It's not our works. It's Christ's. Christ is with us. We win if we endure. Even if we struggle. Even if times are hard. Even if our faith may fail. He is faithful. Don't ever give up. Don't let what Christ did for you on the cross be in vain. God said, okay, but it's still hard to understand. How is it costly and grace? Because grace is that free gift. It's that unmerited favor. It's receiving the gift that we didn't deserve. That is all true. It's costly because we have to seek after it. It's grace because it's the good news of salvation. It's costly because we have to ask for it. It's grace because it's a gift. It's costly because we need to knock to find it. But it's grace because it's an unlocked door. It's costly because it calls us to follow Jesus. We have to follow him. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus, the Son of God. The Holy One. It's grace. It's costly because it cost Jesus his life. It's grace because it offers us the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, but grace because it justifies the sinner. And finally, it's costly because it costs God the life of his only son. But it's grace. Because God did not consider that too steep price to pay for your life and mine. Don't let it be taken for granted. Don't let it be in vain. As we move into Easter, Palm Sunday is next week, Easter's two weeks from today. Let's remember how costly that grace really is. And thank God for it. God's grace 
is the greatest gift. Let's not let it be in vain. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your grace. God, we confess the times that we have overlooked it, taken it for granted, thought that it was something we had to earn, or that we couldn't deserve, so we gave up. We missed out on the potential that you had for our lives because we talked ourselves out of it, because we let ourselves be discouraged. But God, your grace is greater. Your grace is more. Your grace is enough. It's all we need. May we remember that today. And Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to make a commitment to follow, you would extend that grace to them one more time. And they would make today the day of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to offer a time of invitation this morning. If you have a decision you'd like to make for Christ, maybe this is the first day you're going to follow Him. You'll say, I've been ignoring it, I've been talking myself out of it, I've been saying that I'm just not ready, but today is the day. And make that decision this morning. I ask you to come forward as we stand and you say. service if you have any questions or any decisions you can make. Uh, please come back tonight. Of course, we've got 6 o'clock is our evening worship service. We've got the youth going to prepare and uh, lead some things. And uh, for those of you that were here last month when we did this, we're going to share a little bit about the experience of mentoring and connecting with one another. I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you all. Uh, let's be close with prayer. 
Lord, we are just thankful. Thankful for your grace. Your grace truly is amazing. God, I just pray that each one of us would live in the truth of your grace today. That we would stand, not by our own power and our own will, but we would stand leaning on you. That you go with us from this place, Lord. May our hearts, our attitudes, our minds, our actions, the things we say and the things we do bring glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.